So today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, continuing our spiritual gift series, if you want to turn there in your Bible. And we're going to be talking about a subject that we haven't talked a lot about since I've been here. And because it's a little bit complex, we'll have a little bit of a, a question and answer period if you want to ask questions after uh, the lesson is done uh, about the subject of tongues and prophecy. So after about five years of being a full-time paramedic, I had a series of, of kind of really bad calls in a row, a lot of deaths. In fact, I, for two years running at the Christmas party, now you have to understand, paramedics have a really weird and dark sense of humor sometimes. So at the Christmas party, my Christmas gift from the management was a sickle, like Grim Reaper, because I had the most cardiac arrests that year. I was, I was known as, as the dark cloud. Um, people would want to move out of our response areas when I came on duty just to make sure they weren't the next one. It just, it just happened to work out that way. And when you get a whole bunch of bad calls when you're not just able to save people, it really kind of sucks the life out of you after a while. And you just start getting grumpy. You don't look forward to going to work. I mean, I used to really look forward to driving to Lake Geneva every day and jumping on that 911 ambulance and, and providing rescue. It was, it was my life. I would actually wake up looking forward to going to work. And that's how you know you have the job that you're meant to do. But that was starting to really get sucked out of me a lot. I was just starting to dread going to work. I'm just thinking, you know, what kind of tragedy am I going to see today? And it was really starting to drain me a lot. And I was... As I was dealing with that in my life, I heard a job uh, that was available for paramedics that um, had some leadership experience. And so I had both, and I applied for the job just to see what it was. And it was a non-clinical job. I was going to be a supervisor in a medical call center. So they needed supervisors with medical backgrounds so they'd be able to answer some of the more complex questions that might come up. And the pay and benefits were actually much better than I was getting on the ambulance. So I decided, okay, maybe I'll just take a break from being a paramedic for a while and, and go and do this job. And not only that, but I was home every night. I wasn't working 24-hour shifts. And I wasn't always in danger like you are sometimes on an ambulance. So I got the job, and about four months of me working there, the person who hired me actually quit, and they brought in a new call center director. I was just one of the supervisors under the director. And the call center director was replaced by a guy named Dave. Dave was probably one of the strongest leadership coaches I've ever met. Much of what I know about leadership, I actually learned from Dave. He would um, have meetings once or twice a week in his office. We had books that were required reading, and he would discuss these books with us and help us implement these tactics into the call team that was out on the floor taking calls from all over the country and help us to um, be able to lead them effectively, motivate them, and get them excited about their job. Because if you have happy employees, you have a productive employees, and it all flows um, downhill from there. So one of the books that he asked us to read was called a leadership book called Gung Ho, How to Motivate the Employees in Any Line of Work. It's actually a pretty good book on leadership, and it told the story of a failing plant manager an assembly plant manager who was befriended by one of the employees who was a Native American. His name was Andy. And Andy told this plant manager stories 
that he grew up with on a Native American reservation and used it to teach her leadership because Andy had the one department in the entire factory that was even remotely productive. And so she wanted to know, the plant manager wanted to know what his secrets were. So he would teach her these leadership lessons. And one that we'll just look at this morning is called the gift of the goose. So one spring morning, they're taking advantage of the nice weather and they're walking outside during their break and a flock of geese flew over the factory. And Andy looked up and started to explain why geese flew in formation and turned it into a lesson of leadership. Here are five things that you may not have known about geese. And I don't think you even thought you were going to find this out in church this morning. But they are important when you're talking about leadership and even what we're going to be talking a little bit about this morning. So here's five things about geese. Number one, the lead goose does most of the work. I don't know if you knew that, but the lead goose is the one that's flapping the hardest, the one that's doing 90% of the work, and everybody behind that lead goose is actually riding the slipstream that the lead goose creates by working so hard. The second thing, the lead goose does not honk. You hear goose going over, you're hearing all this huge honking. The lead goose does not honk probably because he can't breathe because he's working so hard. But, but So he's not honking. His followers honk to encourage him or her, supposed to be a, a female goose too, to keep going. The third thing he said was geese always stay in formation. If you decide you're not going to follow the leader, then you create more work for yourself and anybody who might be trying to follow you because you're going to disrupt that slipstream and you're going to be flapping twice as hard even as the leader and messing up everybody who is following you. So he said it's very important that we have people stay in formation. The fourth thing that was leave no goose behind. Sometimes geese, for whatever reason, maybe they would have a cramp, maybe they would not feel good that day, whatever reason would have to fall out of formation. Now, you'll never see a goose fall out of formation on their own. Two or three or four other geese will follow that goose down to wherever they're going to land and surround that goose and take care of that goose until they're well enough again to rejoin another flock. The fifth thing that you'll notice is rotate. The lead goose is not always the lead goose. The followers will all rotate up and get a chance to lead the flock. And they'll rotate through them so that they can save their energy. And so when all the geese have made that rotation, that's when the flock will land for the night and, and find somewhere safe to land and rest and eat for a while. And you're probably thinking, I don't know what this has to do with spiritual gifts. But it does. God has given us the spiritual gifts for our encouragement. The spiritual gifts are there for our growth. When you're out in the world interacting with those who don't know Jesus, they're given as much for other people's benefits as they are your own. And today we'll be looking at the speaking gifts in the church, kind of how we're going to honk at each other to encourage each other. It's a gift of the goose for the modern church. And this morning we're going to be looking mostly at the spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues and in prophecy. And so we're going to read about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 1. 
which says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like each, or I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. So, Father God, I ask, Lord, that you take these words of the Apostle Paul and make them clear to us today. There's been a whole lot of teaching, a whole lot of practice, and a, a whole lot of, of church history behind these two gifts, and a lot of confusion has come up. So help us discover the truth of your word this morning and what these gifts mean for our life today. I ask this in your name. Amen. Now I know that since I've been here as your pastor, I think it's, what are we coming We're coming up on seven years this year. I haven't spent a lot of time talking about these kind of things, at least not on Sunday mornings. We talk about them more on Wednesday nights a little bit and on Sunday mornings during Sunday school. I usually focus more on apologetics and how we live our Christian life on Sunday mornings and, and messages like that. So my goal this morning is to bring both a biblical and historical teaching about the spiritual gifts so we can understand exactly what they mean for us today. And these include the, the gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy. But before we get into the specific of these two things, we have to see how Paul introduces them to us. In verse 1 of chapter 14, he says, follow the way of love. That has to be the absolute number one condition of using any one of our spiritual gifts, is we're following the way of love. It's no mistake that the Holy Spirit starts talking about gifts and ministries in the church in chapter 12, and then he stops and, starts, and puts love right in the middle of it. We have to understand that Christian love is the absolute center of everything we do for God, and especially everything we do for each other. You see, God understands the heart of man. God knew that when, or God knew that when he starts handing out the supernatural power that comes from him and the spiritual gifts, that some may get the wrong idea and think that they're getting them getting these gifts because they project some greater spirituality than someone else. And that's why he opens up with saying to follow the way of love before he starts teaching about these gifts in particular. God knew that these would be gifts that would cause considerable amounts of controversy in the church and even some abuse and misuse. So that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but I have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the 
pour and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul tells us, follow the way of love. These gifts that we see here in the Bible are given to us to promote his kingdom on earth, not to build us up in front of one another. In essence, these gifts are on loan to us from God. Have you ever borrowed something to someone and you're unsure if you're going to give it back to the same, in the same condition? How many parents here remember when you handed the keys of the car off to your teenager for the first time for their first solo ride? And how nervous you were. You weren't sure if you're going to ever get that car back in the same condition. You weren't sure if they're going to pull out of the driveway and immediately accelerate to 100 miles an hour just so they could post it to social media that I just went 100 miles an hour. You weren't quite sure that you were ever going to get that back. And as I, I say that because as I read and reread these passages, it seems that's almost how Paul is explaining these spiritual gifts. You have to understand that when he is writing this, the church is only maybe 10 or 15 years old. They've seen considerable abuse of these gifts in the church of Corneth, and that's why he is writing them to, to them to correct some of the things that were going on. And this is also why he is anchoring these speaking gifts in the highest of all Christian ideals, and that is agape love, the same Love that held Christ to that cross to die for yours and mine sin. So I want you to have that in the back of your mind as we look to the gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy. So let's tackle the gift of tongues first. The phenomenon known as speaking in tongues was seen widely in the early church. But for some reason it seemed to die out rather quickly in the early church probably as a result of the intense persecution that came around the time of the Apostle John's death, somewhere around 90 to 100 A.D. As the last of the apostles died, the church was scattered because the persecution from the Roman Empire came in so hard that they were relegated to meeting in secret in houses and basements and everything else that there isn't a lot of discussion in the early church fathers about this gift. After about 321 A.D., there, had been, there was a few small pocket of believers. If you read some of the history of the church, you can read about it. But because of the rise of the Roman Catholic Church kind of squashing the spiritual gifts, you really don't hear a lot about them in church history. That is until 1901. 1901, there was a pastor named Charles Parnum running a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. And they were, he was teaching the Bible to his students so they could go out and be ministers as well. And when they got to these scriptures, he asked them, he was taught that these were, that all this stopped at the, at the, uh, after the apostles died. So he went and he assigned his students to prepare a presentation and a paper to discuss during their watch night service on New Year's Eve. So the students looked at the Bible, they studied the Bible, they went through the concordances, they did everything to look at the gift of tongues, and they said, we don't see that this has stopped. There is nothing in the Bible that seems to indicate that this has stopped. So they said, well, let's make this a focus of prayer during our New Year's Eve service. 
And they started to pray, and they prayed, and they prayed, and then they, they all laid hands upon a woman named Agnes Osman. Suddenly, Agnes Osman began to speak in a language that nobody had ever heard before. As she began to, to pray for other people, they began to pray in a language that no one ever heard before. And that started to spread. It spread throughout the entire country. It spread all the way to Los Angeles. Now, this is in 1901. It spread quickly across the country, all the way even to Los Angeles, to Azusa Street, where they had the, one of the biggest revivals this country has ever known. That led to the formation of the Assemblies of God in 1917, and speaking in tongues was a big part of what made up their theology and the whole of the spiritual gifts that we believe are, exist for us today. So let's define this gift. A lot of people are going to think this is something really weird, something really cultish, something really almost voodoo-ish. Tongues is defined as an ecstatic utterance that is done while under periods of spiritual intensity that may or may not represent a human language. Now, Paul also defined this for us. In verse 2, he said, Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. Anybody remember dial-up internet? Remember hooking up to the phone? You know, do you have any idea what was going on? Do you have any idea the language computers were using to talk to each other? In a spiritual sense, it's kind of what tongues is doing. You may not understand exactly what you may be praying, but God does. You may not understand the, the, the data going back and forth, but God has the translator. It's a heavenly language. That's why Jude 20 says, You, dear friends, build yourself up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. That, that euphemism, pray in the Holy Spirit, was always talking about, when you look through the whole Bible, that phrase is always talking about speaking in other tongues. And praying in the Holy Spirit is, has always been a source of power to the Pentecostal church. There's an intimacy with God that comes from that kind of connection with him. At our first church, I just want to give you an example. At our first church, many of you know that was a fairly tumultuous experience. It's where I actually was called into the ministry. I went through periods of being the associate pastor, the interim pastor, back to the associate pastor, a candidate for senior pastor, and then back to an associate pastor. I, just, I went through all kinds of, of different things in that church. And I remember I would, I would go there to pray, and I would just be overwhelmed. The board would be demanding this, and I thought it was the wrong direction. I knew it was the wrong direction, and all this kind of stuff. And I just got so overwhelmed, I would just lay on the altar and, and just cry out to God. I remember one, one, I think it was a Thursday, I just put, I, I said, God, I've had enough. I can't do it anymore. I took my ordination card that the church gave me out of my wallet, took my church keys out of my wallet, put it on the altar, and said, God, you got to command me to pick it up because I don't want it anymore. I'm sorry, I'm done. I was just at a really low point. I was so overwhelmed. And just something came over me when I just started to pray, and I started to pray in the Spirit, speaking in tongues. And all of a sudden, I just felt just power rush back into me. 
I felt just a connection with God I had not had in a long time. I still had a prayer life. I had still had a devotional life. I was still doing everything I was supposed to do as a Christian. But for whatever reason, something just got you know, into my spirit that got so overwhelming that God just came in during that time and flooded into me and recalled me to the ministry in that church. And I stayed there for another three or four years. The same power is available to everyone who calls Jesus Lord. You just need to seek him, believe him for it, and ask him for it. The second spoken gift is a gift of prophecy. While the gift of tongues is for you, gift of tongues is for you, prophecy is for the body of Christ. It's for the whole church. And I just want to review, there are two forms of prophecy. The first form of prophecy is, is probably what's already coming into your mind. We're telling the future. It's called foretelling prophecy. That's what, when God is showing us what's about to happen in the future and sending word through someone in the church. And that type of prophecy can still happen today. I think it's rather rare because we have the whole counsel of God and God wants us to live on faith and not with a detailed itinerary of what's coming up next week. But there are occasions where he will use that to give us encouragement and to let, let us know yeah, the future might get a little scary in a few weeks, but I'm already there. I've already made a way for you. Be at peace. Have faith. I'm going to get you through it. The second form of prophecy is a forth-telling prophecy. This type of prophecy is speaking to something that is happening in the present that God wants us to know to correct in our own lives. It's very closely tied in with a spiritual gift of word of knowledge. You'll see that other place in the Bible. The difference between the two is words of knowledge are meant to be something that is a personal thing between you and God, while prophecy is shared with other believers in a church. Let me give you an example of what the difference is between the two. Let's say someone comes up to the altar to be prayed for and said that, well, can you pray for me? And I said, what do you want me to pray for? Well, it's an unspoken thing. Usually an unspoken thing is something that you're either ashamed of, embarrassed of, or you just don't want the pastor to know about, which I understand. I get it. I, I totally get it because I've had to go and ask pastors to pray for me too about things that I didn't want them to know, and I get it. But let's just say, for example, it's a person that's struggling with pornography. I really don't know what I'm praying for yet. I'm just praying generally that God will bless them, that God will heal them, and then all of a sudden, God will put it in the back of my mind, this person struggling with pornography. I'm not going to call them out on it. I'm not going to say, okay, church, Jim, well, I can't say, let's say, I can't, Steve, Steve, there's not a Steve here, right? Okay, good. <laughs> I almost said Jim, and Jim is back there throwing the hymnal at me. Sorry, buddy. Um, let's say Steve is up here, and he's struggling with pornography. I'm not going to call the whole church up and say, Hey, everybody, he's on those bad sites again. Let's get up here and pray for this hopeless sinner. You know, it's nothing like that. But it does allow me to pray with knowledge, where I can pray very specifically to and for that person. And you say, well, why is that useful? Well, it's going to be very encouraging for that person 
and increase their faith if I can pray specifically what God already knows they need prayer for. They are already going to know that God is there. He's redeeming them. He's working them through this issue and that he still loves them, cares for them, and wants them to come out on the other side of it. So it's, it's very encouraging to them, but it is still something that is between the person that it's revealed to, for the most part, and God. Another example of words of knowledge is I almost always know when a person is lying to me because the Holy Spirit has given me that gift of discernment, which is closely also tied in with word, words of knowledge, and the Holy Spirit may tell me so, that they're just not being fa- truthful with you right now. 90% of the time, I won't call them out on it, because I will call, I'm going to now look for the reason they're lying. Usually it's shame, it's, it's deceit, or they're embarrassed, or something else, but it's still, it's, it's to give me knowledge so I know how to pray. So I know how to minister. So I can get exactly how I should be a pastor to them in that moment. Now, fourth, telling prophecy is meant for the whole church to hear. It still could only be about one person, but what will happen to that one person will affect the entire body. Let me give you an example from Scripture. In Acts 21, Paul arrives in Caesarea. He's staying with Philip, the evangelist. And Acts 21.10 says, After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says in this way, The Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's an example of forth-telling prophecy. God speaking directly to a situation that will affect the entire church. I'll warn you now, if God tells you to do something like that, please do not take off my belt. <laughs> my pants may end up around my ankles, so <laughs> just, just speak it out. We don't need the word picture. I just, I, when I read stuff in the Bible like that, I just picture that somebody walking up to him and and going, taking his belt off. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> but God will, uh, will use foretelling prophecy that way to really get people's attention, and I bet you he got their attention. So these days, it's most often used when the Holy Spirit needs to speak to the church about a direction, a prayer need, or exposing something in the body that needs to be dealt with. So those are the, the two most common forms of speaking spiritual gifts. So I'm going to answer just a couple of common questions that I've had over the years about these two things. When it comes to speaking in tongues, one of the first questions I usually get asked are, if I don't speak in tongues, does that mean I'm not saved? No. Well, there are a few Pentecostal denominations that do teach that. For example, United Pentecostal Church teaches that if you do not speak in tongues, you're not saved because it's an evidence that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. We do not believe that in the Assembly of God. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. It's something that's called a second work of grace, something that happens after you get saved, like baptism. or um, And the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues is a second work and a benefit that you have from being a Christian, but it is not tied in with your salvation. 
The second one is closely related to the first one. Do we have to speak in tongues? No. You don't have to. You don't have to put gas in your car either. But it'll run a whole lot better if you do. I mean, technically you could push your car around if you really wanted to. But if you put gas in it, it is a whole lot easier. Living the Christian life, especially in the coming days, especially today, is going to get harder and harder and harder to identify as a Christian. You will be standing alone or just with your church family many times in the coming days. I know it's a happy thought on a Sunday morning, but it's true. You're going to need spiritual power. You're going to operate at peak spiritual efficiency. Holy Spirit baptism and speaking in other tongues is that power that God promises us. You remember that Jesus told us, if you're taken before authorities, if you are brought before magistrates, don't even worry about what to say. Don't have a whole legal defense in the back of your mind that you're just going to repeat from rote. Just say what I tell you to say. That is what the Holy Spirit's baptism and, and speaking in other tongues and prophecy gives you during those times. The third question I often get asked is, God use prophecy to point out an individual's sin? I would say sometimes, but very rarely. Only if it's affecting the entire body. The, my first church was founded by a guy named Everett Broker. He had a PhD in theology. And Dr. Broker, and this was in the 1950s, would call out people from the pulpit. He would call out and say, Brother Stephen, you are guilty right now of the sin of adultery of the heart, and God needs you to repent. I don't believe that's biblical. I think that's something you probably should handle one-on-one. -on -one. And... So I don't believe that that is what God meant the gift of prophecy for, like that. I think that is pastoral abuse, actually, if somebody were to do that. So that is not something you'll ever see from me, so don't worry about it, because everybody's starting to go, you know, <laughs> please help them not to look at me. Fourth question, and we get this actually from people who are seekers and, and wondering about the Christian faith, and they hear about speaking in tongues, and they ask, well, won't the, all this crazy stuff, like tongues, speaking in tongues, prophecy, jumping and, and singing loudly and all that, won't that turn off unbelievers? Well, the Bible says, no, it actually attracts them. I think that, there are, that honest seekers will see that God is working among us. The critics will always be a critic. Okay, you can park the Red Sea before them and they'll blame a tsunami. I mean, they're, they're always going to come up with a reason to criticize the church. So I don't think that that is going to turn them off. In fact, if you consider that Jesus used the gift of prophecy and words of knowledge when he spoke of the, to the woman at the well, that changed the, the history of an entire town. Samaria came to be a Christian town after that. The first Christian town. She became his well, second convert after Mary, Magdalene. So yes, it can be used to bring people to Jesus Christ. 